0: Mobility, the first novel from Crooked Reads, is finally out. Advanced Praise calls it a beautifully written and stunningly smart novel and a cautionary tale for our times. John Lovett calls it a book I read every word of, even though my phone exists, and it ruled. <laughs> if you didn't pre-order, first of all, come on, what are you doing? Second of all, get your copy at Cricket.com mobility or wherever books are sold.
1: I don't think most people who walk in the stadium know that there are four people in the history of music who've won the Grammy for album of the year three times. And it's Frank Sinatra, it's Stevie Wonder, it's Paul Simon, and it's Taylor Swift. And when you say that to some people, they're like, well, she's not in that category. And I go, the fuck she isn't? Like, go listen to the music. And I think she does have all of these on-ramps, whether you're into pop music, I think Midnight's is perfect for that. Whether you're into sad dad rock, I think Evermore (laughs) and folklore are great for that. Whether you're into country, she's got the albums to bring you on board that way. And Red, as Nora talks about, is this wonderful mishmash of all things.
0: Yeah, it's funny when... um... (laughs) When I first met Emily and the first time I heard All Too Well, she played it for me and she's like, I just want you to know that she is a much better writer and this song is a much better written song than any speech you've ever written with Barack Obama. <laughs> 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 And I listened and I was like, ah, "It's a pretty good point. I'm John Favreau. Welcome to Offline. Hey, everyone. My guests today are Nora Princiati and Nathan Hubbard hosts of The Ringer's Every Single Album Podcast. If you like Taylor Swift, you will love this episode. And even if you're not a Swifty, which I definitely am, even more than my producers ever imagined, I think you'll enjoy our conversation about how one of the most famous people in the world is also one of the most online, and how Taylor has navigated the internet era to build one of the most successful music careers of all time, and a fan base that follows her on and offline. What's fascinating about Taylor is that even as the internet divides us into smaller and smaller subcultures, she just keeps getting bigger. Her North American Eras tour is on pace to be the highest grossing tour of all time, earning a mind-numbing $1 billion in sales, which she fuels with special guests, announcements, and surprise songs that show up on social media and keep excited fans guessing. And that's just the tour. She's also mastered the way artists communicate with fans online and helped shape the music industry's transition into the streaming era, standing up for the rights of artists to own their own music. Nora and Nathan's Ringer podcast about Taylor Swift is one of my favorites. Nathan has been a songwriter, the CEO of Ticketmaster a decade ago, and he even worked at Twitter. Nora is a sports and entertainment journalist who's currently working on a book about Britney, Taylor, Rihanna, and the women who defined pop music in the 2000s the three of us shared a fun conversation about Taylor's unprecedented cultural footprint. We talked about the business model of streaming versus touring, how Taylor's obsessive internet lurking is one of her greatest assets, and all the ways Taylor Swift is an integral part of the history of the internet. We might have also made some predictions about the last few nights of the Errors Tour here in Los Angeles. As always, if you have comments, questions, or episode ideas, please email us at at offlineatcricket.com. And after the break, Max returns. We're talking about Elon's ill-advised Twitter rebrand and Ron DeSantis' flailing presidential campaign. Here's Nora and Nathan. Nora The and Nathan Hubbard, welcome to Offline. Yay!
2: Thank you so much for having us.
0: Well, I've been a huge fan of your pod for a long time now, and uh, I wanted to talk to you guys on this show for two reasons. One, I'm also a huge fan of Taylor Swift, and two... The theme of this show is that uh, the internet has broken a lot of brains, industries, our politics, our culture. But I have come to think that one extremely online person who has ultimately navigated this extremely online era in a wildly successful and mostly healthy Donald way. Donald Trump! Uh, oh, no, that's yeah, not what we're here exactly. to talk about? <laughs> I mean, sort of, I guess. Logging could, off. Uh, him, too, uh, is Taylor Swift. Uh, that goes for her music, her business, her fame, and most importantly, I think, the community of fans that she's built. So I'm dying to know what the two of you think about all that, but I want to start with a, a simpler question for both of you. Uh, how did you both become fans? And, and more specifically, what was the journey that led you from being fans to hosting a podcast about Taylor Swift. Nora, let me start with you.
2: So my experience of becoming someone who would loudly and proudly articulate themselves as a Taylor Swift fan Mm. was basically like growing up and and deciding to not be insecure. Uh, Because one thing that is very hard for me to square in in my own like personal history and and self-identity is that I have all of these memories of listening to like bootleg YouTube recordings of I heart question mark and the super, super, super early songs that never even made the album and loving them and being so into them. And also, if asked, I probably wouldn't have said to someone, I am a huge Taylor Swift fan until like red.
0: That's, so yeah. I was
2: simultaneously like deeply in it for a while, but then also just wouldn't shout it from the rooftops. But I got over it. And then I think retroactively was more and more of a fan because I was making up for a little bit of lost time. But that was around um, like 2012 was probably when I got super, super into, you know, going to the shows and thinking of her as my favorite artist. And um, it has grown since then.
1: Yes. Uh, Nathan, what about you? I mean, mine is much more boring. Like, I was CEO of Ticketmaster. Flex. And her dad was calling me incessantly, telling me that his daughter was opening uh, for concerts in our venues, and everything was screwed up, and just telling us repeatedly all these things that were wrong with the experience. But he knew, sure as Sunday, that she was going to be a star. And it was impossible to ignore Taylor Swift because he was just relentless in pushing for the best possible fan experience. And the more that I sort of listened and got to know a little bit more about the artist, the more I became a fan. And I I have two uh, late teenage daughters, which sort of those two things came together in a confluence of massive waves to turn me into a fan.
0: And and we should say for people so that um, you don't get attacked. uh, You were CEO of Ticketmaster like like a decade ago, right? It wasn't Taylor Swift's father ten wasn't calling ago. you like a, like a month ago about this. No, no, no
1: no. no, no, Very, very long time ago. Very long time ago. I I have not been there for ten years.
0: That is funny, Norb, that you said that uh, Red was the uh, the first album where you're really a big fan because that's what happened to me too. Because I met Emily in like my wife in uh, in 2011. And she was a big Taylor Swift fan. Red came out right after we started dating. I was like, and I went from being like, ah, you know what, I like Taylor Swift. I like this album. To then, you know, Love Story was played at our, our wedding, and uh, Folklore Aww. dropped the night that Charlie was born, our son. Like while Emily was in labor, <laughs> <laughs> and now I'm now I'm going on the road to show. So it is it is a funny uh, funny little journey. But Nora, the most common question I get from people who aren't hardcore Swifties is. What's all the fuss about? Like, why has this one artist inspired a level of enthusiasm and excitement that, uh, you know, borders on mania?
2: So, look, I, I she's such an interesting person. She's had such an interesting layered career that I think there's a temptation to talk about the business strategy and the relationship with fans online, the relationship with fans in person, all of the sort of um, extracurricular elements of it. The core reason is that she's really, can I swear? Yeah. She's really fucking good. (laughs) She is one of the best songwriters the world has ever known. She has an unbelievable knack for melody. She has a way of bringing specificity into these like huge big tent pop songs that make them feel so intimate and so bespoke, but they're also just capable of being the biggest song in the world. Mm -hmm. Um So she's one of one. She's one of one as an artist. She's one of one as a musician. She's one of one as a storyteller. But it's also been this phenomenon that's built over the course of, as I'm sure we're going to talk about, time when the world has really changed and the way that people interact with artists has really changed and the way that fan communities exist together online has really changed. And that's part of it too and and sort of one of the interesting things about watching this tour is that nathan's favorite thing to say is that like the dudes have gone all in on taylor this summer um
1: because it's true
2: because <laughs> jj watt went to a concert or something um and john
1: cena's showing up at a taylor swift show it's over
2: <laughs> flame of flame is my favorite um so that's part of it, too, is is just that the way that our world has changed has been reflected in in how her career has built and built and built and then built and built and built some more.
0: Yeah, I mean, it does seem like the Eras tour is like a new peak for uh, Taylor Mania. The New Yorker ran a piece about the tour being an enormous exception to all the takes about the death of the monoculture. The idea that thanks in part to the internet, we're no longer all consuming the same cultural moments at the same time or in the same way, and that's making us all feel disconnected, adrift, uh, isolated. Nathan, how do you think Taylor was able to create a a rare monocultural experience that makes uh, just about everyone who's part of it feel pretty good?
1: Yeah, I think it's changed even since you and I saw each other at the show in Vegas. Oh, yeah. I mean. For me, there were a lot of moms and daughters at that show. And when we go in LA this week, John, we're going to see a lot of guys. And I, I don't put that on Taylor necessarily, but I do think the it started with the not illusion, but reality of lack of supply and massive demand. And and that created such a FOMO moment, I think, for everyone. That as she sort of eased into the summer, and we started to see some of these high profile like celebrity men showing up at the show. It, Taylor Swift has always been a thing that's been scary for guys because she pillars, she just absolutely fillets her ex boyfriends in her early work, <laughs> right? And so that became something that just made it hard for some men to access. And then. You know, she dropped Folklore, it sounds like While Your Wife Was In Labor, which was an album made by all of the dad rock heroes, Bon Iver and The National, and it just became this on-ramp for more people to... Get access to this music, and I think it all culminated this summer with first the on sale that became just public for you know its uh, massive amount of demand, and then I, I really do believe that through the course of the summer it just became safe for guys to be like, oh, is this cool? This is cool. Like we're such fucking lemmings. <laughs> we're like, wait, this is can is this something we can actually go? To? Oh, this is cool. Wow. Okay. Great. I'm in. And that's what happened this summer.
0: It's so funny that. You bring both of those things up because I've been wondering this myself, like anecdotally from all my guy friends who are now saying, you know, I like Taylor Swift. I'll go to a concert. I I feel like some of it started with folklore and then some of it was just this era's tour. And so like I always wonder, like, how much is the music itself, as Nora pointed out, that like she's just that fucking good and the way that her music has evolved, as we saw in Folklore and Evermore, and how much is just... Wow, everyone's doing it. Uh, you know, J.J. Watt and Flave of Flave are at the Flav uh, yeah. or at the tour.
1: I, I don't think most people who walk in the stadium know that there are four people in the history of music who've won the Grammy for Album of the Year three times. And it's Frank Sinatra, it's Stevie Wonder, it's Paul Simon, and it's Taylor Swift. Mm. And when you say that to some people, they're like, well, she's not in that category. And I go, the fuck she isn't. Like, go listen to the music. And I think she does have all of these on-ramps, whether you're into pop music, I think Midnight's is perfect for that. Whether you're into sad dad rock, I think Evermore (laughs) and folklore are great for that. Whether you're into country, she's got the albums to bring you on board that way. And Red, as Nora talks about, is this wonderful mishmash of all things. So um, there are, my guess is half that stadium is there for for the show and the cultural moment. And that and that, I think the streaming numbers, when you step out to 30,000 feet and look at this year, in which her catalog, halfway through this year, has streamed more than all of last year. I think you've got actually a lot of discovery that's happening this year.
0: Uh, yeah, it's funny. When, um, when I first met Emily and the first time I heard All Too Well, um, she played it for me. And she's like, I just want you to know that um, she is a much better writer and this song is a much better written song than any speech you've ever written with Barack Obama. <laughs> <laughs> And I listened and I was like, ah, it's a pretty good point. A pretty good point. Um, we talked about... Does she? <laughs> <laughs> it's, a great, it's a great song. Uh, so much of her success is about her relationship with her fans, uh, which seems more intimate, certainly more interactive than most other artists who've uh, reached her level of fame. Uh, I think, like, Beyoncé's fans are equally if not more devoted, but she doesn't seem to be in constant conversation with her fans like Taylor is. Nora, how much of that do you think is a result of her being extremely online?
2: So I I was I I figured we would talk about this and I was thinking mm. about it a lot and she is she is a denizen of the internet for sure. And that's played a huge role. But I actually think she's not as it's not that she's not as online as she seems like she is because she is. She is tailor yeah. probably right now. <laughs> but I think the phenomenon of, of like Swiftiedom, it lives on the Internet, but it actually is what it is. And it is how big it is because she has managed to use the Internet to scale a fan experience that she actually makes much more personal than something that happens online. Because I think the experience of of being a hardcore Swifty, the touchstones have to do with the possibility of maybe getting invited to a secret session of, you know, She's, she's creating
1: not, the illusion of personal well, Well, en- and,
2: and using the internet to scale it, right? Whereas yeah. we were talking about this, and I was sort of forming the thought, and I think I've formed it a little bit more now, but we were talking on a, on a recent show about the difference between a Taylor Swift crowd and a Harry Styles crowd. Mm. And the more I thought about it, One Direction was an internet phenomenon. And I think the relationship with the fans reflects that because there is something to it. And I think that has carried over to Harry a little bit where there is even though there's like this obsessive devotion, there's a little bit of this like. I voted for you on the X factor and I retweeted you and I brought you into this world and I can take you out from it. That is very like loving, but it's also very sort of, um, it it just has a little bit of this like equal footing thing. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, also like the, the, the syntax of online language that we use, like I want Harry Styles to run me over with his car, like the (laughs) run me over with your car. We don't have that. If we don't have one direction, it like that is a one-to-one internet Fandom, basically. Whereas I think Taylor, it is a little bit different. Where it's you're you're in all of these online spaces, and you're going on TikTok to figure out what the secret songs are because she is so good at using the internet to make it seem like you are in person with her. And I, I don't quite know the how important that distinction is, but I think she, I, I think her brilliance is that she uses, she creates. Personal experiences that translate to being something people can experience online.
0: Nathan, what do you
1: think? I feel like all of the best uh, artists, the biggest artists, the biggest brand—they they think about themselves as brands. They think about themselves as direct-to-consumer brands. And uh, Bono is that way. Jay Z is that way. Madonna is that way. Taylor Swift is this way. She is, I think, and I say this a lot on our pod. Like, I think she's the best CEO in the music business, but she is also the first of all of those to be natively online. And I think it matters. I think she understands intuitively the language that her fans speak. And as Nora says, um, every single person who calls themselves a Swifty and is messing around in the deep, dark corners of the internet lives with the possible chance that they're going to get a like on their profile because she goes and does that. There is, just like Powerball, there's a a fucking chance (laughs) that you're going to get the numbers and win a billion (laughs) dollars. It happens. You can see the faces of people who do it and that's what's happening here.
0: I mean, I find it fascinating that she also wants us to know how online she is. And she does this thing where she like routinely breaks the fourth wall with fans. Like she's asked on social media to put Delicate on the set list for the tour and she does it. She uh, kicks off the Evermore section of her first show by uh, telling the crowd that she loves the album despite what she sees on TikTok. Do you think it's like, Nora, why do you think it's important for her to let us know that she's watching and listening and scrolling?
2: Because it's, it's a one to one relationship, right? Like Nathan loves to say that she is a non scalable resource, but just the idea that it might happen that scales to everyone who makes a Taylor Swift TikTok or, you know, was on Tumblr back in the day or even one thing we should acknowledge is that I think often we associate the earliest days of online Taylor with being a Tumblr phenomenon. Mm. This is MySpace Taylor erasure. Um, <laughs> I don't remember that way, at all. Because... <laughs> wait, 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 wait. Oh, it is chaotic. It is right... It came right when she was just starting to get a little bit of traction in her first deals and moving to Nashville. So it's like half... Still had the twang. Half I got to play this little, little concert. And it was so exciting because I met this executive and she's starting to talk about the career, but then she's also just making weird in jokes with, with kids at her school. Everyone should look it up. It's (laughs) deeply weird and amazing and beautiful.
0: Do you think she's uh, scrolling through all these feeds herself? Like, is she staying up late on, on TikTok or is it this her team?
1: No, 100% she is online. After every show, she's looking at the feedback. She's, you know, in her down moments, she's on her phone going through doing this herself. And that's how, by the way, that's what every good CEO does. They listen to their customer base, they go in and they have their finger on the pulse of what's happening. I also think it's important to remember like, if we were to say in the history of the internet, what are the top 10 most person being dragged moments online, Taylor Swift is one of them. Like She experienced a ton of blowback through the Kim and Kanye stuff. And I think that that moment really shaped her, not just because it gave us reputation, thank you, but also because it it you know it's shaped the way that even this last album that she put out the Speak Now Taylor's version she changed the lyric on on one song that was in response to a lot of the things that she heard from the fan base online the Lana Del Rey Snow on the Beach uh, more Lana Del Rey song that she put out that was in response to listening to a bunch of people online so if anything she you would think that maybe she over rotates on what the fan base is saying but she seems to have really good taste and be able to distinguish between what is meaningful and and what's the fan base going to appreciate and and where is she maybe overreacting she just she has great judgment on what she hears online
0: i find it very interesting that nathan you point out that she was you know she's had some tough times on the internet she's been dragged <laughs> quite a bit um a lot of celebrities respond to that by sort of backing off maybe they get offline they don't use social media anymore or they sort of like retreat into like a she sort of like went the other direction she feels like she is she tried to sort of like redeem herself reshape her public image by getting even deeper online which i find very interesting and i also wonder like does she sleep ever? She's writing songs. She's on tour. <laughs> no. And now she's like checking TikToks. Like what is going on there? No.
2: She's also like directing a movie apparently oh, yeah. right now. Yeah. It is unbelievable what this woman's schedule must look like.
1: No, she doesn't. She doesn't. I mean, look. I look at her onlineness now as an evolution. Like, she went away, by the way. Right. She did reaction. kind of walk right. off. She, yeah. she totally disappeared, and she knew that she needed to go away. But she then, you know, at, at that moment in time, the primary vehicle for fan communication wasn't TikTok. It is today. And I think she's responded to the always-on short bits of content piece in a bunch of ways. She That she released all those really short videos introducing each song for Midnight's as basically the promotional vehicle for what was coming. She, she just participates in different ways now, I think, understanding that she has to show up more. She has to stay present to be on people's radar screen. It's reflected in what she does online. It's also reflected in the content that she puts out. Folklore, quickly followed by long pond Sessions, quickly followed by Evermore, quickly followed by Fearless, then Red, suddenly we get Midnight. So she really has changed the way that she puts out content, both in her music and online.
0: Obviously, intense uh, fandoms and parasocial relationships uh, also present challenges for the fans and for the artist. So there's a portion of the fan base that is extremely protective of Taylor Uh, on social media. They'll go after uh, people they think have wronged her. Obviously, right around the uh, re-release of Dear John, she had to go on. So she felt the need to go on stage and ask everyone to be nice uh, to John Mayer. Some fans were also upset about her uh, brief relationship with Maddie Healy because he said some shitty things. Nora, why do you think people get so invested in the personal life of someone that they've never met? Is it because the Internet and social media like make you think you know that person? Is it just a side effect of creating that close relationship with fans, as Taylor has done?
2: Both. Both of those things, I think, are the, the major reasons one yes the the internet is a, is a space that creates mobs and I am I am a member of the mob but <laughs> we the Swifty community should acknowledge that we are a bit of a mob and then she just drives it into she puts it into overdrive right not not explicitly intentionally but what we are what we're talking about here I think like most broadly, Is that she has scaled intimacy with her fan base Mm. through the songs, through the hyper-specific Easter egging in the liner notes back in the day, through just seeding these, I'm going to share with you these tiny gut-wrenching details of my personal life and kind of make them ours in some way because we all listen to the songs together and we all share it together and it's it's this like emotionally potent experience, especially when you're growing up with it, especially when you're young, especially when you connect your own life and your own experiences to it, that we all forget that we don't actually know her <laughs> and feel so strongly about it that the, the easiest outlet for that is to, you know, gather the cavalry if Somebody said something rude. I mean, like this is this is not the most destructive version of it. But I remember when when me came out and it was getting some criticism, there was the girl who
3: tweeted
2: just because you guys want to be assholes about Taylor. Iron Man dies in Endgame. (laughs) <laughs> and just like completely spoiled the movie for thousands and thousands and thousands of people.
0: That is, so, that is so. funny.
2: And that's just what happens, right? Like that's the existence of fandom online. And look, that's a hysterical example. And I love thinking about it. But it does get a lot more destructive than that. I hope she I hope she does more like I, I f- thought it was actually a pretty big deal that she said, you know, hey, guys, don't cyber bully John Mayer. Because she doesn't usually talk to the fan base that way. And I think a lot of artists don't because it it's a little scary. Like, what if the mob turns on you, right? Right. Um, but usually we've only heard her sort of marshal that resource to say, I don't like Scooter Braun. They did this to me and I'm I'm trying to reclaim my art. And I think, look, I think someone like Scooter, a private equity fund, like, That is a worthy adversary, and I personally do not have an issue with her saying, I am in a dispute with these people, and if you feel that I have given you something over time and want to be on my side, this is how to do it. But sometimes that becomes punching down. Um, Again, I don't think in that case, but I think it's capable of of becoming that. So if she continues to be more and more aware of when everyone is going to go crazy and do all of that stuff and tries to take some responsibility for it. I think that would be a massively positive force for the way that artists interact with their fans. So I hope she does it more. And I liked that she did it then.
1: I think you can't look at what she said about John Mayer without looking at what happened to Jake Gyllenhaal coming out of the 10 Minute All Too Well version that she released, where the fan base went nuts on him and the scarf stuff and people were dropping in his Instagram comments. And again, she was the recipient of this over the Kim and Kanye stuff. And I think she probably, rightly so, took a step back and said, I don't want to be a part of this. And unlike the BTS fandom, which does its own thing, unlike the Beehive, which... which Beyonce's uh, uh, fan base, which which does their own thing, Taylor really is the general of this, and and what she showed on that stage in Minneapolis when she told them to back off, they followed. I mean, there has not been a lot of John Mayer stuff online, and so she does have control of this thing, which is a very powerful weapon if used properly.
4: and enjoy your edible. (laughs) Legal disclaimer, paid for by Vote Save America, votesaveamerica.com, not authorized by any candidate or candidate's committee.
1: Horrors that we face every single day. Happy Women's History Month to all. Check out what's in stock at com slash store for this month
4: only.
0: Nora, you mentioned something about how she shares a lot, right? And she shares a lot about her personal life. Uh, that's always been true, right? You know, like her, all our songs are famously about, you know, ex-boyfriends and enemies and friends. But uh, I feel like she's become even more self-reflective and maybe self-critical in recent years. I mean, obviously, anti Hero's all about that. That's her biggest hit-off Midnight's. But um, it was interesting. One of the most honest things I've heard a, a famous person say about fame is when she introduced Mirrorball at her first show. And she said, uh, she's talking about the song, and she said, I was trying to think of an eloquent way to say that I love you and I need your attention all the time. <laughs> having experienced the wrath of the internet and been dragged in the past like why do you think she has chosen to be so open and vulnerable when she's been burned so many times in the past like she continues to be even more open and vulnerable I would say
2: so one I don't think that she can help it she's That's a sharer who she is. Yeah. it's just who she yeah. is and it's how I mean she does care about the work I think truly above all else. And that is the way that she processes the things that happen to her. One of the takes that I hold nearest and dearest to my heart over the last few years of, of stuff that she's put out is that this idea she has concocted about how she's less and less autobiographical and she is, you know, mining movies and books and blah, 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 is lovingly Taylor, absolute hogwash. <laughs> and all of these songs are about her. <laughs> Or yeah. even if it's it's writing herself into a character, it's like, okay, I see what you're doing there. Um, so I, I think it's just – it has certainly helped her. It, it certainly was something that got her a lot of press and a lot of attention, especially early, to be playing the Easter egg games. And it's something that's remained really, really fun um, for us to put on our clown masks and and go crazy about. To this day, but I really think on a core level, she has to pour her heart out into song, and the songs are public, and therefore it becomes sort get. of part of the public do- domain. Yeah.
0: Yeah, it is, it is about clearly about her. Uh, it's autobiographical. All these lyrics are, a lot of the stuff she says. I also wonder, Nathan, if it's about finding a way to connect with people who are experiencing sort of the same feelings and letting them know it's okay i mean this idea of you know i need your attention all the time that is sort of the uh overriding theme of the internet age all right is that everyone wants to post they want the retweets they want the shares because they need the attention and i think i took that as her saying like yeah even someone like me who's this successful i need i need your attention all the time too that's just that's just what life is
1: yeah i i think uh <laughs> look, she is um she is gr- more grown up now is the thing. I think it comes from more of a place of self-reflection than insecurity. Mm. And you know, I look there's a moment in the song Mastermind, the last one, where she sort of tells you that she, she, this was all her thing that that she she's planned this all the time and nora and i have had a good argument about this which is to say d- did she actually mean it or is she being sort of uh tongue in cheek and i think she really means it like the, the, it, she says like this is the i'm reading the lyric now it, this is the first time i've felt the need to confess and i swear like i'm only cryptic and machiavellian cuz i care and i really believe that that's true like i think she it, it she has Always known that she's sort of moving the pieces and she's felt this, this sort of control that, upon I think probably lots of therapy and reflection, she, she gets that she gets that, um, that that's what she does. Now, what's remarkable for me is that a woman who is probably the most famous person on the planet at the moment, pretty close, certainly top three or five, still is able to write songs that feel relatable to 18 year old girls. And that is, I think, the unique power of her songwriting and why I do think that she's like, she is one of the great American songwriters, not just of this generation, but of any.
0: I want to ask you guys about Taylor's impact on the music industry. So her rise to become one of the biggest pop stars in the world coincides with the beginning of the streaming era. She picks early fights with Apple and Spotify over the way artists are paid. She takes on Scooter Braun in part to take a stand for the rights of artists to own their own work. Uh, also especially important in the streaming era. Um, She takes on Ticketmaster, gets them dragged before Congress. Nathan, how much of what Taylor has done do you think will open the door for other Taylors? And how much is just what you can get done when you're that big of a star?
1: I think it has had a very, very meaningful and long-lasting impact on the business. Mm. And um, in the recorded music business, it has reignited the fight that frankly Prince was carrying for quite a long time which is that artists should own their master recordings and the deals in frontline record label making now like very few artists today are signing away their master recording rights they're doing deals where the company that helps market and that pays to make it to to help get that music made gets a royalty for a period of time but in almost all cases now the the, the the ownership of that art is reverting back to the artist. And that is something different than when she wrote the public letter saying that this should happen. Now, she's not the only reason why that's happening. There's been a bunch of... You know, the internet has made distribution cheaper. It's made marketing cheaper. Um, so there's a whole bunch of reasons why I think the record label can't command such a price for their support. But she has been a big part of changing that. She also has obviously been a big part of changing the way that artists get paid from streaming services. And so I I think it has not just been a public-facing thing. It's been something that she cares deeply about. And I can just tell you from my vantage point, doing a bunch of stuff in the music business, it's had a lasting impact on the foundational economics of, if not touring yet, certainly recorded music.
0: Nor do you think that the way the music industry is now, the way we find music, the way music shared... like. Do you think it will be easier or harder for sort of the next Taylor Swift to become the next Taylor Swift?
2: I don't know that I think there is a next Taylor Swift because for all of the things that she's been on the leading edge of, she has been so smart about the choices she's made about how she's conducted her business at this very specific moment in time when when the economics of the industry changed completely, the way that people experience fandom has has changed completely but she's also she's like an analog person there's a part of her that is a very very analog person and there are so many stories about as she was coming up i mean people in radio or sponsors getting handwritten thank you notes and personal phone calls. And and I think it is in some ways easy to underrate just because she is so big and, and she has been such an online phenomenon in so many different ways that she has done a lot of the sort of painstaking work of building a career in a very one-to-one um, personal way. I think that extends to some of the stuff with the fan base, like through the secret sessions and, you know, Taylor Swift baked me cookies and, and, sent them because she read on Tumblr that I was going through a hard time or, or whatever it is. There's dozens of those stories. It extends musically a little bit to, you know, 1989, which felt like such a peak. One of the things that's craziest about this summer is is Taylor Swift like had this period of quote unquote overexposure almost that precipitated a lot of the disappearance before Reputation, and I had fully internalized that as like this is is Taylor's empirical dominance era and she's on top of the world and now we're doing something else. And then she has just like completely blown it out of the water and yeah. is bigger by, you know, many times over than she was at that moment, which is just wild to consider. But the music she was making at that time, which is still some of her most sort of mainstream work was not referential sonically to what was going on in music at the time. Like she just has, Mm. she's just always been an individual. I don't think she's replicable. So I think she's changed a lot of the dynamics of how the business works. I think she and Harry Styles and for better, for worse, Maddie Healy in the 1975 is is another one that Nathan and I've talked about a lot. I think now um, they have created an impact That I think artists will definitely continue to copy in how they tour and try to create these moments every night at a show that work online, that work on TikTok, that make it an event for people who aren't there to still go see, did Maddie eat raw meat? Did Harry Styles say something goofy? And what were the surprise (laughs) songs? You know, pick your poison. Um, But in general, I just I don't I don't think we will have a next Taylor Swift is I guess how I would answer that.
3: Yeah,
1: the math just makes it really hard. The the Internet is working like the promise of Spotify was to create this nicheification of music where every person could find their own fingerprint. And that's happening. There are lots. There's a burgeoning middle class, John, of artists, and I think it's just hard for us to all get around one because people's tastes are subtly different. And to to the point that you made at the outset, this feels like sort of a monocultural. Hey, we got a lot of divisions between us as human beings. It feels great to go with seventy thousand other people who you don't know into one place where we're all sort of chemically wired to be together and celebrate one thing euphorically together. And that's a big part of what we see here will that happen well i don't know you tell me we just we just got a third indictment it's not it's probably not helping people feel uh, all connected to one another is it
0: uh no no this is this is one of the only things this like it's we this summer we had the Eras tour Barbie and Oppenheimer i mean there's just so few experiences like that that people can talk about and be happy about without devolving into chaos all the time you mentioned the touring though like do you think touring will continue to be the primary way that musicians make money now. And how does that affect the kind of music that gets made? Who makes it? How they get people to hear it? Like How how has that dynamic uh, changed?
1: So there were two really big sort of earthquake moments in the music business in the in in the 2000s the first was Napster which cut out the economic foundation of recorded music and what happened at that time was artists income if you drew the pie chart of their revenue went from probably 80% recorded music and 20% touring suddenly they lost 80% of their revenue because nobody was paying for music anymore and what artists started to figure out was they looked at the secondary market and said man people are spending a lot of money on tickets that i'm not getting in my pocket there's a lot more demand for touring than I'm giving them in terms of supply. And instead of touring every four or five years, what if I went out every two years? What if I went as a country artist or Dave Matthews band out every summer? And it turned out that there was a ton of pent up demand for these experiences, again, because I think we're chemically wired to be together. And so artists revenue flipped from 80-20 music touring to 80-20 touring music. Then in COVID, they lost That revenue for two years as the world shut down. And so artists started to say, what else is there out there for me? It looks like athletes and actors and YouTubers and TikTokers are fully monetizing their brand online. They're backing products. They're creating new consumer brands. Maybe I now have permission to do that. And so touring will still be a huge, more than 50% of artists' income. But I do think there's this new pie piece in that chart of consumer brands, how artists uh, make money through the digital space that is going to grow dramatically coming out of COVID as artists feel like they've got permission to be direct to consumer brands Mm. All
0: right, I need to ask this one because it's me as we head into another uh, terrifying election Do you think Taylor's political involvement and willingness to speak out about politics will grow, recede or stay about the same as it is now? Whoever wants to take it?
1: I think it's gonna grow. I mean, I really? think she just yeah, but the, the the really only post that she's made outside of uh, hey, thanks, Seattle, hey, thanks, Chicago, hey, thanks, uh, Santa Clara, was I just voted in Nashville and you need to register early and often to be able to do this. I, I there is a uh notable uh absence of touring happening in the fall of twenty twenty four. Uh she'll be back in America, presumably having toured Europe. Um so I, I think it I think she she knows she has a platform. Uh and she has used it this summer to launch at least one album. We'll see, John, if she launches nineteen eighty nine this week. Uh but I think it's a platform that she does not take lightly and intends to use. Nora, what do you think?
2: I think that's right. I think if anything, she will she will do it more. I might I might have gone with stay the same. Less I think is out of the question. I don't think you put the toothpaste back in the tube on that and I think it was something she clearly felt very strongly about engaging with for the first time and and regretted that she hadn't done it sooner. I I I also want to I push back a little bit sometimes when I hear you know she doesn't speak out often enough which is just to say that that she is a special communicator. And I think less important than hearing from her all the time about this stuff or or whatever it is that people want to hear from her more on is just that when she picks her spots, she really goes for it. I mean, you know, I would very much like to be excluded from this narrative. That's that obviously was not something that we got from her in in a political context, But when she is trying to Kanye
1: is a presidential candidate. I mean, (laughs) yeah, right, right.
2: Just going to ignore that. (laughs) Um, When when she is trying to just ether through a message and get it across and have a final word, she's very, very, very good at that. So the reason that I certainly hope she does, she continues to make that a part of of um, her public set of stances or or whatever you want to call it. Is not just that, you know, I would personally like it, and it's not just that I think it's impactful because she has millions and millions and gajillions of people who pay attention to what she does. It is that when she wants to articulate a message well, she can do that with such precision. You know, like we are all in some way, shape, or form writers here. She is so good at it. So it's it's a real... To me, it is about quality rather than quantity. And for as great as it is for her to say, like, please go vote, my hope is that we will continue to get some very specific messaging from her going forward.
0: I completely agree with that as someone who cares a lot about politics. And look, I think it's it's tricky for her because I think now her fan base is probably a lot more liberal and and partisan towards the left than it ever was when she started out. And especially I would imagine that those fans are the most vocal, especially the most vocal online. And so she gets a lot of pressure to speak out all the time, but I look, she's a very persuasive songwriter. I think she's also very persuasive in what she says and she picks her, she picks her moments and she knows, I think that her audience is not just people who may already agree with her politics, but people who Not like hardcore Trump fans, but people who may be on the fence, people who may not be involved politically and figuring out how to move those people and get those people to vote takes a lot more subtle approach and fewer public comments, I think, than many online liberals would uh, would want.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I think her ability to bring straight males into the fandom this summer is an indication that she's able to onboard people subtly and in ways that are not as overt. Just
0: going after those Joe Rogan listeners. Uh, all right, <laughs> I got to uh, I got to end by asking you guys a, a few quick fire predictions about the end of the American leg of the Eras tour here in Los Angeles. We got five shows left. That's ten surprise songs but there's like dozens she hasn't played yet. Any guesses? Hopes?
1: I'm going to get New Romantics because it's Nora's <laughs> favorite oh, song right. and it's, like it's going to make her so songs. angry.
2: Um, my I two, can't wait. My two favorite 1989 songs, New Romantics and I Know Places, are both still on the board and I just know it's happening. I just absolutely know it's happening and I'm going to be begrudgingly happy for Nathan but seething on the inside on some level. I don't think she's played King of My Heart. Which mm-hmm. I would love to hear acoustic.
0: Also, like, where do we think Bonaventure's coming? Are we gonna Are we gonna hear? Are we gonna hear? Nathan Exile? does. Are we gonna hear Cornelia Street?
1: I think we're gonna get a few surprises in Los Angeles, to say the least. Okay. I think Cornelia Street yes. is
2: is off the board. You think so? I, we didn't get it in New York, and you think it's a
0: Joe thing? And she's just.
2: I, I think it. I think it's. I think it cuts too deep.
0: Is that? Is that the same as New Year's Day? Do we think that's why we haven't heard New Year's Day yet?
1: Well, I think we haven't heard New Year's Day for the same reason we might not hear Christmas Tree Farm. <laughs> she's staying out of the seasonal stuff in the summer.
0: First of Emily all, Emily keeps saying that we will get Christmas Tree Farm at the last show. <laughs> That's what's going to happen. If you yeah. do, so.
2: it's incredible. It's, I <laughs> keep getting in arguments with bananas. people on, online about how I want her to play McCavity um, from Cats, which <laughs> I don't think she's actually going to do. No. It's just no. funny. <laughs>
0: It is very funny. Do we think there'll be any additional tour dates in the U.S.? Do you think she's, I saw some rumors.
1: Yeah, there's a lot of rumors. I don't see it. I don't see the time for it. And I think at some point here, uh, she's going to get back into the studio in a more serious way. I also think that she's entitled to have a life. Uh, She is now, you know, newly single and being on the road is not super conducive to uh, having a functional relationship with another human being. So I will be surprised if there is more. I think she is a theater nerd and she knows that the best thing to do is to leave them wanting more. Yeah,
0: And we think 1989 is coming
1: soon. I think it's coming very soon.
0: Wow. Very, very soon. Exciting stuff. Nathan and Nora, thank you so much for doing this. This was really fun. Appreciate
4: it. Thanks, John.
2: Very fun for us as well.
4: It's 2024. We're facing another presidential election with huge stakes. You want to help. You don't know where your money will actually make a difference or how to figure that out. Ensure you love to take an edible and not think about it, but you can't because you do care. Let Vote Save America make it easy for you with their new anxiety relief program. Here's how it works. You set up a monthly recurring donation at the level that feels right for you, and Vote Save America will send 100% of it to the grassroots organizations and down-ballot races that need it most. Then, at the end of the month, they'll tell you where your dollars went. That's it. Set it and forget it. Vote Save America has already raised $52,000 in monthly recurring donations. Love it. That's great from over 1,000 amazing, sustaining donors who've signed up and trusted Vote Save America to make their dollar go further. But we still have a long way to go, and Vote Save America needs your help to get there. Sign up at votesaveamerica.com and enjoy your edible. (laughs) Legal disclaimer, paid for by Vote Save America, votesaveamerica.com, not authorized by any candidate or candidate's committee.
0: Reclaim your time now that you can listen to four weekly ads-free episodes across Pod Save America and Pod Save the World there's never been a better time to join Cricket's Friend of the Pod subscription community. The
3: marketing people say that listening ads free saves you up to two hours of ad listening each month. Imagine the possibilities. You know what you can do with two extra hours a week? You can listen, listen to, to two- more podcasts. Exactly. Uh, two more episodes. That's yeah. two more episodes. Yeah. Get more stuff in your brain. Yeah. Get more
0: stuff in that We're brain. We're stuffing content in there like, yeah, uh, like you're a fog gras. Just- <laughs> Become a member today. Go to slash friends now to learn more.
3: All right, Max is here. I'm back after a couple Whew. weeks of posting some X's, reading some X's, re Xing, just. Z- 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 what are we calling it? I don't know what to call it. I'm calling it fucking Twitter.
0: <laughs> anyway, that's what we're about to talk about. Um, the two of us have been talking about the slow death of Twitter for a while now, but now the bird is finally dead. R.I.P. The app is still alive, but the bird is dead. I
3: really didn't think that was how it was going to go. Yeah. I really thought the service would stop working. And the one part of it that is really effective, the branding, he decided to just voluntarily kill.
0: Elon Musk has rebranded the social media platform as X. That's the official name. That's the logo. The bird's gone. He started this process a couple months ago because he um, wants to turn Twitter into what he calls a super app. Here's what he tweeted or whatever the fuck you he's, call it he's now. Just, just, Quote, in the months to come, we will add comprehensive communications and the ability to conduct your entire financial world. The Twitter name does not make sense in that context, obviously. So we must bid adieu to the bird. Uh, 17 years of brand identity down the toilet. What do you think, Max? Why did he do this?
3: I, so I've heard a few different theories for why he did this. And I think that they're, there's, they could all coexist. I mean, one that you hear is that, like... Th- Naming his company X has been his like weird creepy, yeah, for like 30 years, yeah, 1999 or something. Yeah, like trademarked it and then
0: X. Dot com became, which, wild, it became like PayPal.
3: Yeah, well, that was, so that's like how he made his fortune was the PayPal mafia, initially was the PayPal mafia. He yeah. had this payment company. Yeah, he Yeah, on... at,
0: at the HR guy at PayPal was uh, David Sachs. Now, he now that's that's his claim <laughs> to fame. Could
3: you imagine the HR guy at
0: PayPal? What a job. Now he's, now he's doing Twitter spaces with Ron DeSantis. <laughs> he's being the HR guy
3: at Auschwitz. <laughs> he's, he's a, he's, now he's a general in the Ukraine war. And, and the, in the meme army. Yeah, right. Um, so he was was so insistent when he was one of the co-founders of PayPal through this company that PayPal acquired that he wanted to call it X and he was doing this weird like trying to like edge out the PayPal name. First he renamed it to PayPal X or X PayPal and then he was like changing the corporate structure. And this is actually how he got ousted from PayPal because the board was like, what are you doing? The PayPal name is so valuable. It's become a verb. It's in the common vernacular. That was a big part of why he got kicked out of his own company. (laughs) So there's some like weird like you know, this is his rosebud sled as he (laughs) wants to be in charge of a company called X is like probably something there. There's the super app argument, which we should talk about because I think there's some interesting things there about like why so many companies in the US have tried to do a super app, which is really common overseas, but doesn't exist in America and why Twitter is the worst possible company to attempt this. (laughs) And the third that I actually feel like I've not seen as much, but I give a lot of credence to is that this is all maneuvering for bankruptcy. like something that we have talked Uh, about a lot is that like Twitter's finances are bad and getting worse all the time. Musk has been caught on tape saying that he thinks that Twitter could have to file for bankruptcy. And I think that if that happens, one thing that this will set him up for is he can go to his creditors because he's going to have to renegotiate the 14 billion dollars that he owes them in the bankruptcy hearings. And say, well, as it happens, one of Twitter's most valuable assets, its intellectual property behind its name and its branding, which is really valuable, exists in this kind of separate company. So why don't you, my creditors, take this, and we'll say that that's worth, you know, four billion, five billion, whatever. I mean, Twitter, or right, Twitter what Twitter name. used to be, yeah, the twi- just the name. The name. Yeah, which has happened before in some bankruptcy hearings. There's a magazine I can't remember which that and sold. Then what its happens name to off X and,
0: in that situation?
3: That So the idea is if he does this, which to be clear, I'm just speculating. Yeah, that's do.
0: great. <laughs> Why not? <laughs> you know what? That's what Elon's doing,
3: too. <laughs> <laughs> then X would still exist as we know it. But one of the assets he would sell off to his creditors is he would say, I can no longer use the Twitter name, which he doesn't want to do anyway, because I'm giving that over to like whatever, you know, yeah. set of bankers I owe all this money to. Are you saying that we could buy Twitter? We, uh, honestly, we could buy, we could rebrand offline as Twitter. (laughs) (laughs) Um,
0: So, (laughs) first of all, he's, whatever reason, he's, like, really insistent on, like, extinguishing every last vestige e- of the bird. Extinguishing? Yeah, right. They, oh, my no, God. They... Like, what an they, excellent they, pun. They renamed all the conference rooms immediately. They like took down all the logos, including the, the sign. They took the Twitter That's bird right. down from the sign yeah. outside the San Francisco headquarters. And then he put up an X a on the roof. Flashing X, giant yeah. flashing X, which then the city was like, no, you have to take that down right. because it's you bothering can't everyone. You just put up a giant
3: flashing X. Yeah. Um,
0: but let's, let's talk about the super app because mm-hmm. he, he, he apparently has been enamored with and, and used WeChat in mm-hmm. China as a right. comparison. Right. And the idea behind a super app is it's payments, it's maybe it's ride sharing, maybe it's like your Postmates, maybe it's you can do everything, you can sell stuff. Commerce, Commerce, banking. video, right. you can do it all. You don't have to leave the app. Right. You can do everything. My, my thought about that is like, okay, I'm, I trust that it's obviously working overseas in various places, but mm-hmm. like, isn't that what our phone is now? <laughs> like, is it is really, is all, all of this is that's is true. just right. like breaking down the friction between like going between apps. Yeah, That's right. what we're trying to right. do with a super app because I have a
3: phone. I think that's actually, that's a really good way to put why super apps have not taken off in the United States the way they have abroad because Elon Musk is not the first silicon valley tech guy to say what if we did a wechat yeah. because obviously that would be like wouldn't it be great to be dominant at eight different markets at once yeah. uh, like and hey did you, do you guys notice what's going on in china <laughs> yeah tech guys the slow, famously the never right they all go to china once and they're like i have discovered wechat something that exists <laughs> for one and a half billion people um, And like a lot of tech companies actually have been trying to do a version of this for years. Like Uber obviously is now getting into meal delivery, like Facebook and Apple both have payments. And a lot of tech companies have tried to get into banking, tried to get into payments, and then they end up shutting those down or they've tried to get into like different services to tack on to their apps. And the reason that it's really hard to launch that in the United States, but easier in other countries is that like when you're launching a super app in like Kenya, because like Temtem, one of the big ones, it's like, popular in a lot of african countries a big super app you are launching that in like 2018 and there are not a lot of dominant players already in things like ride sharing food delivery e-commerce right so it's easy for you to say like i'm going to launch one company take over all these markets that don't really exist yet on smartphones if you try to launch that in the united states you're saying i'm going to take on like seven different giant companies (laughs) and like dominate the market like Twitter's not going to dominate the market in ride sharing. It's already dominated. Or can't just buy yourself. Right. You can't just buy your way into that. So, this is what always they're like, we'll do a WeChat. And it's like, well, it turns out we already have all those services on our phones, like you were saying. So, we don't really need a super app. And also, you would have to knock out these hugely profitable companies. And Twitter's definitely not going to do this because you know what Twitter doesn't have anything of? Money you need a lot of
0: and you know what else you need if you're going to be someone's super app that they Mm -hmm. rely on for everything and put all their information on and stuff like uh trust trust and it doesn't have any trust and like the user needs to trust the experience enjoy the experience which means that they either have to like or not care about the owner which is not the situation we find ourselves in with x is it
3: i mean can you imagine going onto the misinformation and hate speech app and being like time to pay my electric bill (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Time like, to do some banking is, on here. Yeah, that sounds safe. Why is lawyer
0: is a Jew t- trending? <laughs> um, let me call Let me call a ride. Let me call a ride.
3: Get some food delivered on here and it just eight speed shows up to your door instead. Jesus Christ. Um, and they, one thing that I thought really underscored the fact that I think even Musk much know deep down that he's not going to do this is that when he bought Twitter, they had someone who was leading this initiative to try to do payments on the app, which is really hard to do in the U.S. because of all the regulation. And one of the many people he fired was the person leading the initiative to bring payments to Twitter. So I think that this is just like bullshit branding to try to justify what he wanted to do anyway for his own combination of like juvenile reasons and just like whatever economic stuff he's trying to navigate. That's my theory. One thing I really uh, have
0: enjoyed about this new Twitter era, X era, is, um, <laughs> is like the periodic tw- exes from um linda Yacarino the new, <laughs> I, I new ceo i really like, great life decision linda i know uh, I, 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 <laughs> and then she's, she's I like the most corporate babble speak kind yes. of stuff everyone's like, like so she on this one she just waited and she's like you're going to have like the most connectivity of all time and it's going to be powered by <laughs> ai and everyone's and the experience is going to be awesome and it's like what what are you saying?
3: I'm so curious how many people said no to that job <laughs> before he found someone like desperate enough for the pay bump that I'm sure will last like 18 months before this company goes down in flames. Like Tough. what a terrible CEO job you're destroying your own company you're not in charge of anything because you have this weird edgelord meme guy (laughs) running everything and you have to do these humiliating exes about how you're (laughs) taking over the payments business it's a terrible job i mean she'll be fine don't feel sorry i'm I'm not
0: not pouring anything out for linda yaccarina
3: okay speaking of
0: right-wing edgelords uh here's (laughs) a here's a few recent headlines about ron DeSantis's campaign rolling stone DeSantis donors want him to stop blowing money on fucking memes. <laughs> uh, Daily Beast Ron DeSantis' campaign's Nazi video is what being too online looks like. Yeah, that's a that's a apt, Great straightforward
3: stuff. description of what happened in American politics. So, the reference there in case
0: you missed it, in case you were not that online, was to a video that the uh, DeSantis campaign briefly retweeted uh, that ends with soldiers marching towards a spinning Nazi symbol that has DeSantis' face on it turns out it was made by the campaign speechwriter uh, Nate Hawkman who was fired as a result Hawkman was at the National Review before that has been called a quote rising star in the intellectual right <laughs> and has said has said this is his quote that he likes hanging out in quote the goo of the fever swamp of young right-wing internet circles mm. sounds like a cool guy <laughs> sounds like he sounds like target brand Stephen Miller <laughs> So
3: did you, did you watch the video? Yeah. What'd you think?
0: I don't, I didn't know what the fuck they were talking about. Right. It's like weird guy at the computer, whatever that edgelord meme
3: faces. It's a lot of like deep 4chan references. Deep 4chan. Yeah. <laughs> I, something that I thought was actually really interesting about this moment as a like marker of where we are in American politics, where we are in like online politics and the relationship between those two things. Is that it is a, like, deep, like, 4chan, like, online Pepe the Frog guy references, which is a big thing that, like, Trump's campaign did. They really spoke to that aspect of the Internet, but it worked much better for them. And I think that's interesting. A couple of, Like, one is that, like, I think this is a real recognition that a big part of the Republican coalition now is, like, 4chan shitposter far-right, like, Nazis, Well, I
0: certainly think it me the most engaged uh, section of the Republican Party. Mm -hmm. And I mean, I think it's still it's maybe even more dangerous because these are the people who are they get the attention of the media types, Mm -hmm. the activists. This is fueling a lot of the organizing enthusiasm, unfortunately. Right. Right. But I think that the difference is because Trump was such a big is such a big, unfortunately, uh, personality. In 16, when they did this and they had the Pepe the Frog bullshit, and and you know, even now he's like retruthing QAnon stuff. Yeah, that doesn't become like the headline of the campaign every day because the 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 main part of the campaign is Trump because he's such a big personality, he's out there, he's saying whatever, right? right. And even in 16, like his tweets ended up on like mainstream media channels, right? So like CNN is talking about the tweets and they're talking about Trump, but it's more about Trump's message than about Mm -hmm. what's happening online. Because DeSantis is such a like fucking stiff, Mm -hmm. uh, who's just boring and dry and wooden. The machinations of his campaign become the
3: headlines, which is this. I remember in 2016 though, I remember a lot of days when the news cycle was dominated by like, Trump or Trump Jr. retweeting like some Pepe the Frog Nazi. Like, do you remember the like meme they put out of Hillary Clinton with all the stars of David? Oh, yeah, that was a. I think that the difference is the way that I mean, number one, I think that the online far right came to Trump. Yeah, whereas what DeSantis is trying to do is to cultivate that's the online far right. And yeah. I think that's part of the trouble that he's gotten in is he's like picked out a faction of the online far right. The groipers I hate that I know that. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Which is this like this faction that like they hate the alt-right because they think the alt-right are a bunch of their words cucks because they associate with Jews oh i did not know that yeah it's this guy nick fuentes who is like his whole thing is is like talking points usa he considers to be like a bunch of centrist shills because they have jews and they really hate that jesus but it's like part of what got them in trouble is they like have the nazi stuff but they don't actually have the energy of the online far right behind them and i also think that just the like place of the online far right has changed over the last seven years where in 2016 i think they represented Unfortunately, a lot more people. It was a much bigger movement, and the like energy that they like, what was then the Gamergate coalition, basically in twenty sixteen. Like, I think that brought a lot of energy to the Trump campaign, and now the online far right is much more siloed. It's much more extreme, mm. and it's like much more fractious. Which is like what happens when you become part of the establishment, as they definitely did during the Trump era. Yeah,
0: I also think that if we're just talking about the difference between Trump and Desantis as politicians, the the normie MAGA voters, yeah. which is now like the, I call them normies because they're like the mainstream of the Republican Party right. now, unfortunately. Right. Like these are demographics for this group as like boomers who watch Fox.
3: That's true. And
0: right. they want to hear about immigration, crime, the swamp, crooked Dems, like all the ultra-nationalist America First bullshit, right? Mm-hmm. And, the tr- and that's like, that's Trump's, Main message still on his on his discipline days. (laughs) And I think the DeSantis campaign is designed, like you said, to try to appeal to the Nate Hockmans of the world. Right. And that group of people in the Republican Party is, you know, college educated, online, extremely online. And they're picking at every culture war fight that's out there. They know all about it. And there's a lot of the energy in the party is there. Mm -hmm. But the numbers and voters aren't there yet. right. And so I think that's why Trump ends up being Trump speaks to more of the Republican Party than DeSantis does.
3: I think it's absolutely true. I think it's also a sign of how much the influence of the online far right in 2016 and 2017 was a creation of the social platforms. Yeah, because they were really big on Twitter and especially on Facebook. And then finally, years later, when those platforms started to crack down on them, guess what? Suddenly they don't have anything like the cultural influence that they used to have. And I do also feel like something I hear from people I know who travel the online far right is that the January 6 prosecutions have had an incredible chilling yeah. effect on the like people who would be leaders of these groups because they really are terrified now of going to jail whereas in 2016 17 and especially in 2020 obviously they thought like the wind is at our backs we've got the zeitgeist we have the mandate of heaven and we can do whatever we wanted yeah. Well, that's a that's a good thing.
0: Um, I think it is. Some people have compared uh, Desantis's campaign being too online to Elizabeth Warren's campaign being <laughs> too online in uh, 2019, 2020. Um, what do you think about that? I
3: mean, it feels a little unfair because she was too <laughs> online in the sense of like. Also, no Nazi videos from Elizabeth Warren. Right. She wasn't hanging out with groypers and having like talking about how much she loved the like far right influencers. It was just like two, but I do think it's an apt comparison in like speaking to when you when you base your understanding of your own party's politics on what you see on Twitter and what you see online, you end up with a very skewed perspective, which I think is what happened with both of them.
0: And the reason it's skewed is because the online, very engaged crowd Mm -hmm. is more college educated, they consume more news they are mostly news junkies like us and in both the democratic party and the republican party that's just a fraction of the electorate in each party and so in elizabeth warren's case it's like most voters are unfortunately not making up their minds on who to vote for based on your plans and policies based
3: on page 37 of a 300 page pdf
0: yeah and look i did you know i i Loved Elizabeth Warren and uh, I made the mistake of, thinking, yeah, everyone, everyone in the party is going to love right. these plans, yeah, you right, know, but it's yeah. just that's and in DeSantis's case, it's like not everyone knows the ins and outs of these fucking esoteric culture wars that he's talking about. He's on TV talking about suing Bud Light, you know, <laughs> And rep- like most even most Republican voters were like suing Bud Light. I know. And then yeah. in the New York Times, Siena poll for the Republican primary that just came out, like they gave Republican voters an option like. Do you want a candidate that will fight woke ideology or one who like closes the borders and fights crime? Then they wanted law and order and crime stuff and immigration stuff. They didn't want they didn't care about the woke ideology as much.
3: Do you feel like this kind of like online world, online discourses have become less influential over time? Or do you think it was kind of always irrelevant?
0: I think in the I think in the last year or so, it started to. It's become less influential.
3: I agree too. I'm not totally sure why that is. Like online
0: controversies don't seem like as much much of a thing. It's much more interesting.
3: Right. Yeah. Also, everybody online is too busy fighting about Barbie and Oppenheimer right now to care about (laughs) the future government of the country. I also think it's just everything's become more decentralized, right? Like, like, because,
0: mainly because of what Elon's done to Twitter. Right. And so that's falling apart and no one knows what's going on with threads. And so it's just a much more decentralized it's, it's true. online world
4: yeah. right
3: now. Like Facebook really used to be the center of online American politics, which I think people like you and I, it was easy for us to miss because we weren't in the Facebook demographic, but it is really not anymore the way it used to be, both because it's, user base in the united states is declining mm-hmm. and also just because they are trying to push so hard away from political content which usually just leads to more info- misinformation yeah. on the platform but does make it less relevant to politics day to day and you know what then A good news there too yeah just
0: more good oh, news for all of you guys yeah uh so before we go we just want to say thank you to margaret uh, thanks to margaret one of our uh, offline listeners who sent us these fantastic forget-me-nits and these are, forget me, it's, you put this on your phone, mm-hmm. and it reminds you that you're on your fucking
3: phone too much. <laughs> <laughs> so it's a little cloth band that has colors and patterns. If you're not watching the video, it has clothed patterns like woven into it it looks really cool and it's just wide enough to go over the notifications yeah. on your phone i've had it on my phone a bunch and it is actually really helpful at it makes you think for a second because you have to slide it off your phone to check it it blocks the notifications it yeah. makes me and use when you my phone and basically. when you touch it there's a little bit of an electric charge <laughs> that's just, just yours that's just yours <laughs> we did put a car battery on your forget me not <laughs>
0: Uh, so thank, thank you thank you Margaret for uh, What's the uh, what's the website? The web- for the oh yeah, I was, I was looking for that here. It's uh forgetmenit.com.
3: Forgetmenit.com.
0: Forgetmenit.com. I love them. So check it out. All right Max. Well, I'll uh, I'll talk to you next week. Thanks for uh, thanks for joining at the end here.
3: Happy Xing. <laughs> Fuck. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Offline is a Crooked Media production. It's written and hosted by me, John Favreau. It's produced by Austin Fisher. Emma Illich frank is our associate producer. Andrew Chadwick is our sound editor. Kyle Seglin, Charlotte Landis, and Vasilis Fotopoulos sound engineered the show. Jordan Katz and Kenny Siegel take care of our music. Thanks to Michael Martinez, Ari Schwartz, Amelia Montooth, and Sandy Gerard for production support. And to our digital team, Elijah Cohn and Rachel Gajewski, who film and share our episodes as videos every week.